This morning we close our short series on the atonement by looking at the last part of it, which is the result of the atonement. As I go through this, I want you to keep one question in mind. What does the atonement communicate about the effects of the atonement? I will look at the results, but what does it say about it? Uh, Wednesday we will discuss a little bit more about this and we'll go back to next week's sermon and consider Isaiah 53, not next week, last week's sermon, Isaiah 53 as well since we didn't get a chance to cover that. Why is it important? The atonement answers why Christ died. It also tells us for whom Christ died and it shows us the eternal effects of Christ's death. There are two aspects of Christ's atoning death that relates to this. First, the suffering obedience of Jesus. This is the act of penal obedience where Jesus bears the punishment of our transgression upon himself. That is the suffering obedience of Jesus Christ. And secondly, there is the living obedience. This is when Jesus by means of his perfect nature, by means of his perfect life, absolutely keeps every element of the law. And hopefully this makes sense later on. Both are required for a perfect atonement. One act relates to our sin as lawbreakers, and the other relates to our inability as law keepers. We could not keep God's law, neither could we pay the penalty for breaking God's law. So that is why we need Jesus. The whole life of Jesus produces for us the atonement. This is a work in history. I don't like the the term that is uh, sometimes written in some commentaries or uh, theological books. This is an eternal work. It has eternal implications and ongoing uh, implications, but it's a once-off event that took place in history. The effects of the, incarna- uh, of the atonement continues to go on, but it took place in the time of Jesus. The whole life of Jesus is required as a substitute on our behalf. Take note of this, not just his death. Now, don't get me wrong, the death seals the atonement, the resurrection guarantees the benefit benefit of the atonement, but if Jesus did not keep the law perfectly, then he just reset the clock. Then we go back to the garden. He needs to be perfect in all aspects, aspects of his being. If Jesus is no better than Adam, able to sin but just but chose not to sin. If Jesus is not the perfect replacement of Adam, then he just resets the clock of our sin and his obedience is not transferred in his righteousness. That is a problem. That means God still requires of us to keep the law. Paul in Galatians 2.21 informs us that if we could gain righteousness through the law, then Christ died in vain, which means if there is a righteousness that could be obtained by your works, by keeping the law, then you don't need Christ. 
So Christ not only covers the penalty of our sin, but provides a righteousness that we don't have. If we could please God or meet God's high standard by means of the law, then we don't need Jesus. So I don't understand why so many Christians desire to live by the law. If there is any righteousness in keeping the law, meaning if you, could, if you can cause anything that is pleasing to God by means of the law, you don't need Jesus. In fact, Paul says, if this is what I do, meaning keeping the law, after Jesus is Christ, then I nullify the grace of God. That's hard. By leaning, how do we nullify the grace of God? By leaning, depending, and keeping the law, the side of the cross. In doing so, we set aside God's grace on the cross and magnify the law in place of Jesus. The law not only reveals sin, but it was given to multiply sin. The law magnifies the high and holy nature and standard of God. When we think of the law, we think of what? The Ten Commandments. And that's okay. That that is a synopsis of what the law is. The law, in essence, is about 316, 13 commandments. Let me read to you some of the the Hebrew nuance of the commandments. I'm going to just use the, the Ten Commandments. You shall never have any gods before me. You shall never murder. You shall never covet your neighbor's goods. You shall never lie. Now we know it as thou shalt not, right? The force of that verb the negation plus the form of the verb, when it comes together, it produces a, an increasing intensity. So God is saying, this should never be the case. That is true of 613 laws, which means God's high demand is beyond, beyond anybody's capacity to keep. The intensity of this command suggests that it is impossible For anyone to keep all the time, every time. When Jesus comes, he says, You have heard that it is said, You shall not murder, or you shall not commit adultery. But I say, that if a man so much as looks at a woman with lust, he has committed adultery in his heart. That's not better, Jesus. That's worse. In other words, what Jesus points out is the intensity or the, the, the inability of man to keep the law. So you think it's just the list that was given to you? No. Guess what it is. You can never perfectly keep the law. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus ends like this. He says, you must be what? Perfect. Like your heavenly Father is perfect. That is the demand of God. God requires perfection for us to stand in His presence. Keep that in mind. Without the perfection, without perfection, God will never be satisfied with a sinner. Jesus points out that it's not just about keeping 
the point of the law. It's not just about a tick box. It's about ticking it every day of your life consistently. That's how difficult law keeping is. So, when Paul writes in Galatians and says to you that you nullify the grace of God, he's talking about what the atonement actually accomplished. This is why we need a perfect representative in death and in life. Jesus is the perfect provision of God to deal with the penalty of sin and the high demand and requirement of God or of His righteousness. This is what substitutionary atonement communicates. Now, there are those of you who are new to the sermon series. I encourage you to go back and listen to the other four, three, three that, we, that I preached. And hopefully, as a whole, it will make sense. Jesus is the complete and perfect satisfactory propitiation for our sins. Let me say this one. If God requires anything more than the perfect life of Jesus, anything more than the sacrifice of Jesus, then that thing which he requires is far more significant or important than Jesus himself. So if God expects you to keep the law so that you may please him, then the keeping of the law is far more important than Jesus' perfection and the cross work of Jesus Christ. That means God is adding to the cross. If God requires for us to keep the Sabbath, keep the law, have good works, or even our obedience to enter heaven, if God requires that for us to enter heaven, then Jesus' sacrifice is not enough. Jesus had to drink the bitter cup of God's wrath. Jesus had to provide forgiveness through his blood. Jesus must clothe his people with his righteousness. Jesus must be perfect in life in order for the results of the atonement to be real and applied to his people. Now as we consider the results of the atonement, I want to wrap the sermon series up by only looking at four results. I know that there's a lot more. Um, and, and by right, all four of these are sermons in and of itself. I, I don't want to keep on going for the rest of the year. So I will just summarize it with these four. And I mentioned it last week. Number one, Jesus removes the cup of God's wrath for us. That is called satisfaction. Number two, Jesus brings reconciliation, redemption, forgiveness through his blood. That is called eternal security. Jesus gives his perfect righteousness to sinners. That is called imputation. And then lastly, Jesus brings perfect righteousness in keeping the law to his people. That is called freedom. Let's begin by considering the first result of the atonement. Jesus takes away the cup of God's wrath. The only way that the atonement is achievable is if God himself comes to earth and reconciles men and women to himself, by himself, for himself, and from himself. God has to save us from his wrath. The cup of God's wrath is the unbearable punishment for all our sin. Now, if the necessity of the atonement means that God himself must come to deal with it, then there is nothing, 
absolutely nothing, no will, no desire, no choice, no work, no keeping of the law, anything that a human can do could ever please God. If God does what is required on our behalf, then it requires nothing of us. Nothing could be given in exchange for the remedy and the penalty of our sin. So God, as Paul says, was in Christ reconciling the world back unto himself. How does he accomplish this? When Jesus received the fullness of God's wrath, that means the death penalty, he completely and satisfactorily dealt with God's anger towards sin. Now, to prove this, go to Leviticus chapter 16. In Leviticus 16, we have a forward-looking type. And I'm just going to read the relevant sections. And verse 6 God says, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Now that atonement is not the theological atonement that I'm speaking about, and I'll I'll explain that in a moment's time. Then he shall take two goats and set them before Yahweh at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So first he covers his own sin, And then he takes two goats set aside, uh, um, two animals set aside for the covering of the people's sin. Verse 8. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats. One lot for Yahweh and the other lot for Azazel. Now, in some of your uh, comments, there would be a a point that would say that Azazel is an ancient Near Eastern uh, word for a demon. Possible, but it is also known as a scapegoat. And in some of your translations, it will actually say that. So Zazel is the scapegoat. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for Yahweh and use it as an offering for sin. So there's one that would um, die, the sin offering, on behalf of the people. But on the goat on which the Lord fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before Yahweh and make atonement for it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. The translation there is really awkward and I don't think it is you that they are being sent out into um, the wilderness but as Azazel, um, as the scapegoat. What is in view here? There are two offerings. One deals with sin. That's the sin offering, the one that dies in the presence of God. And the other one is removed from the presence of God. That is the Azazel, the scapegoat. One carries away the penalty of sin and one deals with the penalty of sin. Temporarily, for a short time. And then next year, they have to do it again. Now, what about this word atonement in Leviticus chapter 16? Often in theology, the terms are interchanged with the theological meaning of atonement, such as what we've been looking at in the penal substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is the theological description of the atonement. Um, And they take that to mean 
the same year as in the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. The meaning of this Hebrew term is just covering. That is what the atonement is in Leviticus 16. It is not the same as what Jesus does in the New Testament. So don't get confused between the terms and don't import the meaning of Jesus' atonement back into the covering. So Adam provides a covering for himself, a covering for the people, and a goat that will carry away the sin of the people. This is a type. This is not exactly 100% the same. This looks forward to what Christ would eventually do. So it's a type of what God does in Christ. These sins that take place in the Old Testament look forward in anticipation of the full and perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ that will take away sins permanently. Now the Lamb here doesn't take it away permanently. These sins committed in the Old Old Testament were covered for a short period of time, whereas when Jesus comes, he perfectly deals with the sacrifice, with sin, any sacrifice permanently. Two different things. God's righteousness in the Old Testament is never vindicated by means of these sacrifices. God still has to deal with sin. This is just a covering so that he doesn't consume them in his wrath. But to point to the reality of what Jesus will do, you've got these two goats. Jesus will not only bear the wrath of God on the cross, but he will carry away the wrath of God, away from God's people. That is the result of the atonement. It was the cross, not the Levitical system sacrifices, which made full and complete and permanent atonement and therefore redemption for God's people. Understanding that when they offered these sacrifices, if if you read the Old Testament, it's a bloody event. They slaughter a lamb every day. Why? Because they sin every day. They cannot perfectly keep the law every day. And so they have to make a covering, a shedding of blood, so that there would be forgiveness of sins. This shedding of the blood of the lamb causes him to understand that that lamb is in my place. I should be dying. I should be shedding blood, but my blood would not be enough to satisfy the wrath of God. So what then is this cup of God's wrath? In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says, Matthew 26, My Father, if this cup could pass, not my will, but yours be done. Sorry, John 17. What is this cup? The cup of God's wrath is mentioned in Isaiah, which deals with God's unrestrained anger that is poured out upon the rebellions. Those who hate God's holiness. Those who choose not to submit their knee to Him. Jeremiah speaks about the cup which is filled with the wine of His wrath. God will pour out that wrath upon a people who refuse to to, um, submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This wrath will ultimately, utterly consume those on whom it is poured. 
This is visions of apocalyptic language. So the wrath of God exists. So what then does it mean when Jesus says, if this cup may pass from me, not my will, but your will be done. The Old Testament pictures the fearful anger of God against sin, against the unwilling submission to, submission to the Lordship of Christ. And this language is what Jesus captures in these words. The imagery that Jesus draws upon is this fullness of your wrath, the cup that you will pour out eventually. Let me drink that cup for my people. So in other words, don't pour out your wrath on them, but if it is possible. If there's any other way, let it pass from me. Was there another way? No. Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes away the cup of God's wrath by drinking every drop of God's anger towards sin for us. So now let's think about this. If God pours out his wrath, Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 8, for God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. If God demonstrates his love in the wrath poured out on the Son, what then happens with the wrath of God? Is God empty of wrath? No, he's not. The wrath for his people is poured out on the Son, but the wrath still remains for everyone else. The unrestrained, the full unrestrained anger of God against our rebellion is unleashed against Jesus. That is what the atonement accomplishes for us. Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. The result of the cross is that there is no more wrath, no more condemnation for those who are found in Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just pause there for a short while. Paul deals with yeah, the reality of sin in chapter 7. That believers will sin. And he says, you know what? God dealt with your sin. In Jesus. As a net result of that, there is no more wrath that will be poured out for you. You are, not excused, um, exempt from the pouring out of God's wrath. Because he dealt with it in the Son. What about unbelievers? Go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood... This is what has taken place in the cross. Much more shall we be saved by him from the what? Wrath of God. See? The wrath still exists. For us it's been absorbed by Christ, but for those who do not believe, it still exists. So then the atonement speaks about God's wrath, or I should say, Jesus drinking up the wrath of God for those who believe. But for those who do not believe, the wrath remains. Go back to Romans 8. This is the result of God's work. Notice how Paul explains 
what he means. He goes back to this idea of condemnation because it's already been dealt with in Jesus Christ in verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? So if all of this is true, if God is for us or stands in, in our stead or for us, who can be against us? What is the answer to that? No one. He did not spare his own son, he goes back to the cross, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And that's not all things as thinking of every portion you could own. The all things are explained. Let's read on. Who shall bring any charge against God elect? In other words, is there anything that can stick to the people of God that will cause them to be condemned? The answer is no. Why? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? In other words, there is no more condemnation. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Wow. In other words... You have been saved by his blood. You have been secured by his resurrection. And you are interceded for by the Lamb. In other words, there is nothing that stands against you in the court of God. Because Jesus, the Son of God, has paid the penalty on our behalf. It is God who justifies. Again, Paul centers in or zooms in on the cross. Verse 35. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. Will this separate us? No, by no means. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. We are dying. No. In all of these things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. Let me just pause there. The love of God in the book of Romans is expressed in one particular point at the cross. This is how Paul understands the love of God. God demonstrated or showed his love in that Christ died for us. So when he says love of God or love, that is what he's thinking of. In through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from what? The love of God in Christ Jesus. Where is it found? In Christ. Why? Because that is where the love of God was demonstrated. That is where the wrath of God is fully appeased in the love of God in the death of Jesus Christ. We have a no condemnation status. Why? Because Jesus fully and adequately received God's wrath on our behalf. This means that this love that Paul is speaking about is specifically limited or particular in its scope. He loves us and we cannot be removed from his love. The love is connected to the cross. Jesus expresses the love of God by drinking the cup of God's wrath for his people. 
So firstly, Jesus takes away our condemnation by bearing God's wrath. Secondly, Jesus secures a reconciliation, a redemption, forgiveness of our sins through his blood. In other words, he provides eternal security for all those who believe in him. There are definite eternal consequences of the atonement. The teaching on the blood of Jesus or the cross of Christ is very explicit in the New Testament and generally would tell us what results from this work. For instance, the death of Christ guarantees that we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Go over to Ephesians chapter 1. And, and this is important in terms of as you are thinking of what is the implication or the net result of the atonement. Take note in verse 7. In him, this is Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Where is it found? Redemption is found not only in him, but by means of or through the blood of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Next line. The forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. It is found in Jesus. And it is only found in him. All this relates to all that God has done and what he achieved in Christ. In Christ alone is redemption. Through the blood is the means of our redemption. And the forgiveness of our sins is the outcome of the cross. This means that the atonement results in both redemption and forgiveness. The work of the cross results in redemption and forgiveness. Let that settle. It's not just the fact that Jesus died. It's the fact that God accomplished something through the death. God guarantees that those who are in him will have redemption and will have forgiveness of their sins. Notice that Paul says we have, not we will have. This is not, uh, not something that is potential. This is a guarantee. It's a secured promise in the Son. You will have it. It is only found in Christ, which means there is no other way to be redeemed and to have forgiveness. God cannot forgive on any other basis. There is no forgiveness in another religion. There is no forgiveness in keeping the law. There is only forgiveness by means of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ because that is a guarantee outcome of the work of Christ. The results of the cross is that all who are in him and all who are to be found in him are eternally redeemed and forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. Look 
at verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us to the adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us. This is the blessing that he is speaking about. All of our salvation is wrapped up in the beloved in which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, the beloved one, we have redemption through his blood. What is he talking about? God accomplishes the eternal plan that he determined before the foundation through the cross. Redemption and forgiveness is a result of the cross. That's the atonement. The fulfillment of what Jesus promised has been accomplished in verse 7. What am I talking about? Matthew 26. You should know this. It's read quite often in this pulpit. Listen to the words of Christ in verse 27. And when he took the cup... And, and he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and, and said, or saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Not that the cup was blood, don't get that wrong, which is poured out, hasn't taken place yet. So it's not the blood, it's to be poured out for many, for the forgiveness of since Jesus predicts that the pouring of the out of the blood will result in what? Forgiveness of sins. But take note of this, which is poured out for many. I would circle that, and I will circle back to that in a moment's time. That is hugely important in thinking of the implications or the results of the atonement, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus said that he will shed his blood so that there would be forgiveness of sins. Again, it's not potential. It's actual. He's not saying so that you may have forgiveness. No. He guarantees that there will be forgiveness for those who are the many. So who are the many? I will answer that because I think that answers quite a lot in this discussion of the atonement. Turn over to Romans chapter 5. I don't usually jump to so many passages, but uh, since these, this is uh, four sermons in one, you're going to have to uh, just um, get used to flipping from pages to page, page, page to page. Verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified, taken out by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. What do we have here? Reconciliation is a guarantee to those who are in Christ. You are reconciled because of the death of Jesus Christ. The result of the atonement is reconciliation. This, like I said, is an invasive uh, doctrine. It covers a lot of different theological uh, points. These are not potentialities. These are actualities. In other words, Jesus is not saying, my blood is poured out so that many would be forgiven. That is potential. But he says, is poured out for forgiveness. That is actual. In other words, it's a guaranteed work with guaranteed results. They used to, they used to have that slogan on TV for um, uh, some products that they sold. Guaranteed work with guaranteed results. You don't see it anymore because nothing is guaranteed in life. Forgiveness of our sins with the redemption of our soul is an outcome of the atonement. What about those who died before the cross? Romans chapter 3, verse 24. I'm going to read from verse 24. Let me back up to 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace and as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Again, redemption relates to the propitiatory work of Christ on the cross. It's an outcome. It's a guarantee. This was to show God's righteousness because in his uh, divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, not just forgiven them. God took all those sins, gathered together, placed it in his son on the cross so that it may be forgiven in Jesus. That's what he says next. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, in Jesus, sorry. That's the result. The result of the cross guarantees the salvation of the many who believe. <laughs> I have nothing. <laughs> Redemption is in Jesus. That's the location. But notice again verse 25. whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation through his blood. This means that propitiation is made in his blood, and that is why redemption is a guarantee and an outcome of the cross. Through faith at the end, or in faith, it is only those who have faith to which this applies. The result of the atonement is limited to the person of Jesus Christ and to those who believe. So it can only be found by faith in him. You don't have access to the results of the atonement anywhere else or in any other way. 
In other words, there is no forgiveness, no redemption, no justification, no sanctification apart from being in Him. The only time that becomes real for you is if you are found in Him. Jesus provides eternal redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation in His blood. This is what Hebrews 9.12 says, that He provides an eternal redemption through His blood. Eternal. Redemption is not a reward. Forgiveness is not a reward. Reconciliation is not a reward. It is a gift. These are results of the atoning work that is given to those who believe. The atonement guarantees the reality that all of those who are found in him escape the wrath of God. And secondly, all those who are in him are secured eternally through redemption and forgiveness. Thirdly, Jesus' perfect righteousness is imputed to sinners. He gives his righteousness to those who do not deserve it. There are many verses that allude uh, to this. And Paul in Romans 5 speaks about the imputation of sin in Adam and then righteousness in Jesus Christ. But notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, um, 5, sorry. Just trying to figure out where that passage is. In verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God through him or in him. Uh, ESV says it this way, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a transaction that takes place here. Think carefully about this. Our sin is taken and it is transferred to Jesus. That is meant by the statement for uh, God made him to be sin. Jesus knew no sin, was not a sinner, but God made him to be sin. Why? So that we could become the righteousness of God. So this is an impossible transaction. How can God receive sin to himself? That's imputation. God took our sin, placed it on the Son, who is God, and took the righteousness of the Son and imputed it or credited it to our account. That is a technical, legal term. So God takes the sin of the sinner, credits Jesus with that sin, and then takes the righteousness of Jesus and credits the sinner with that righteousness. God nails to the cross every single sin that we committed or ever will ever commit. Every single sin that his people committed is nailed to the cross of Christ. Why? So that God can deal with sin and so that the righteousness of Jesus Christ can be imputed to the believer. God, now don't get shocked by this, needs more than just the death of Jesus in order for us to stand in his presence. Don't react yet. It's not a heresy. 
Notice what he says. He makes, uh, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So Jesus becomes what he is not. So that we might become the righteousness of God. So that we would become what we are not. That is righteous. You see, in order to stand before God, you need perfect righteousness. Not just the death of Jesus. That is why there's a transaction that takes place at the cross for those who believe. God takes your sin, gives it to Christ. He takes his righteousness and gives it or credits it to you so that in him you may stand in his presence. And apart from that imputed righteousness, you will never be able to stand in the presence of God. That alone, this crediting of God's righteousness to us, alone is what pleases God enough for us to stand in his presence. The death of Jesus deals with the penalty of our sin, but the righteousness of Jesus deals with our acceptance before God. I like how the King James Version translates Ephesians 1 verse 6 to the praise of his glory, his grace, or, glory, or, or, or his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. What is he talking about? The death of Jesus Christ makes us acceptable. The perfect one gives his righteousness for the imperfect. Jesus' whole person, including his life, is required for us not to be crushed by God's wrath. Christ had to have a righteousness that is not derived from the law, by the law, in the law. He had to possess a perfect righteousness that was his own so that those who are in him and believe in him would receive the righteousness and God would say, accepted. Accepted in the beloved. Now, consider this. The righteousness of Jesus Christ Christ is a guarantee transfer at the cross. Why? Because the sin of the sinner is guaranteedly, is that a word? No. Is guaranteed to be transferred to Jesus, right? So if the one is transferred, then the other part also has to be uh, true. Both are required. And so if the sin is transferred to Jesus, what happens to the righteousness of Jesus? It must be transferred. So the righteousness of Jesus is a result of the atonement. So that all those who believe in him will receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In other words, you cannot have the atonement. You cannot have the atonement apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You cannot have an atoning sacrifice without Jesus giving righteousness to people. That creates a bit of a problem, doesn't it? So if Jesus then dies for the entire world, does the entire world receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ? That is a dilemma. That is a, it's an honest dilemma. The Bible seems to suggest that there is a transaction that takes place at the cross. The righteousness of Jesus becomes ours and our sin becomes His. That is the atonement. Which means then that only those who believe in Him, only those receive His righteousness. If anybody receives the righteousness of Jesus Christ, he's accepted in God. Oh, sorry, by God. 
Get that? If anybody receives the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, he's immediately accepted by God. So then, can the atoning work of Christ be applicable to every individual person in the world? I don't think so. Consider the recipients. Go to Romans chapter 5, verse 18. I have five minutes. I've got one and a half points, so allow me to finish this. Romans 5, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass, uh, trespass led to condemnation for all men, and I'm going to deal with that question, who are the many? Remember I said to circle it? So let me deal with that. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. Who's that? Everyone, right? So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Who's that? Everyone? Okay, let me read it again. Who is in view in the one trespass? Adam, right? So let's put that in. Therefore, as one trespass, quote-unquote, in Adam, led to condemnation for, quote-unquote, all in Adam. Make sense now? So all in Adam is in view in the one trespass. So one act of righteousness, quote-unquote, in Jesus, leads to justification and life for, quote-unquote, all men in Jesus. Make sense? That's the sense of all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Who are the many? All in Adam. So you explain that in verse 18. The many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many were the many. All in Christ. He's already explained that in verse 18. The many will be made righteous. Why does that sound so familiar? Where did you hear the many from? Well, Jesus prays it, right? Uh, uh, says that my blood would be the forgiveness, would, would result in the forgiveness of sins for the many. But where does Jesus get it from? Isaiah 53. You don't have to turn there, but listen. Verse 11. At this stage, the outcome of the sacrifice of the cross, meaning the death of Jesus Christ, the outcome, the net result of that is now in view. Out of the anguish of his, of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So he's not going to remain in the grave. He will be raised and see the result of his work. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, this is Christ, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Hang on, that sounds like Paul. Yeah, it does. Because Paul is quoting Isaiah 53, verse 11. That sounds like Jesus. Yes, because Jesus is including the many that he has in view because he knows that he will see the many, the outcome of his suffering. They are the righteous. Notice what he says. Make many to, uh, to be counted righteous. He said crediting again. And he shall bear their iniquities. Who does the Messiah's, whose sin does the Messiah bear on the cross? The many. Their sin is born by him on the cross. Why does Paul say many? Why does Jesus say many? Why does Isaiah say many? Because Jesus knows who will believe. 
Jesus knows who are his. And so he says, I guarantee that they will be righteous by means of my death. Paul makes the same argument, so does Jesus. Many does not mean all, it means some out of a group, some from a larger group. It is poured out, his blood is poured out for the many. Righteousness is imputed to this group, the many. Understand that this is uncomfortable to you. I only ask you to take the scripture to its logical conclusion. The righteousness that God gives cannot be given indiscriminately to everybody. Because if he does, then everyone must be saved. If that is the case, then all are made righteous. Last point. I know it's on half past. I'll make it quick. Jesus provides a fulfilled law through his perfect righteousness. Remember I said in the beginning that it is not only the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, it's not only the sacrifice of Christ that, it is, that is needed. It is a perfect life. Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 2. That is also required on behalf of his people. For the law of the life of, uh, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. What is he talking about? Set you free from what? The law of Moses. So in other words, if you have this new law operating in you, the law of the spirit of life, then you're no longer bound to what? The law of Moses. Let's follow it through. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What is that? That is the law of Moses. In fact, you don't have to go to 2 Corinthians, but 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4, mostly chapter 3, deals with the difference between the law of the Spirit and the law of Moses. The law of Moses is called the law of death. The law of the Spirit is called the, the law of life. So this new principle is placed in us by means of the Spirit. And when that takes place, that means that God is completely satisfied with the keeping of the law. How is that possible? Read further. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Not that the law was weak, but the flesh is weak. It cannot perfectly keep the law. How did God do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Take note of this. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So the flesh is weak. It cannot perfectly keep the law. So God sends his son in the flesh, why? So that he can condemn sin, because sin causes us to break the law. You cannot keep the law perfectly. So he could condemn sin in the Son, and the Son perfectly keeps the law. Follow that through to the next line. For he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Did you catch that? God sends a Son because we cannot keep the law perfectly. God sends a son so that he can condemn sin in uh, his son. That is the cross. But then it goes beyond that. How does God do this? By the son keeping the law perfectly. And so that fulfillment, the perfection of the keeping of the law is imputed, transferred to us. In, in other words, notice what it says. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled where? In you, in us. What does that mean? You do not live by the law of Moses because it's been perfectly fulfilled by Jesus Christ. 
Make sense? The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is required for the perfect keeping of the law. Apart from the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, there is no keeping of the law. And if there's a keeping of the law, then it means that when he imputes his righteousness to us, what do we get with that as well? The perfect keeping of the law. God does not require us to live by the law of Moses. Why? Because it's been perfectly and adequately and completely kept in Christ once for all. Why then do you want to return to the law? Galatians 3 is very clear on this. We are no longer under law, and if you return to the law, then you deny the perfection of Jesus Christ, because he kept it perfectly. Then you deny the sufficiency of his sacrifice. The law of Moses is perfectly fulfilled in the atonement, and God has given us in Christ the perfect keeping of the law. Now, does that mean that we live without a law? No. It says that we are free from the law of sin and death, but you are bound to the law of the Spirit. You live by a different law now. So that doesn't mean that you're free to do wrong. You live by a different standard. What is the implication of this? If God is the one who sent the Son to save his people, if God is the one who provides justification, reconciliation, redemption, forgiveness through his blood, if God guarantees both the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ and the perfect keeping of the law in the imputation of Jesus Christ, then there is nothing you could do to please God. That is actually amen. I'm not asking you to say amen. I'm just saying that that's a relief. Praise God because he's given the son to do all that we could not do. You and I could not receive the wrath of God. You could not uh, redeem yourself. You could not save yourself. You could not make yourself worthy without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his perfect life. God does not want to work. God does not want your choice. God wants merely the faith that he provides to you so that you may believe in his son so that he may be glorified in your salvation. Your work means nothing before God if God has not provided that work to you. Implication of all this is that salvation is all of God. Salvation cannot be lost. If eternal redemption is guaranteed because of the atonement, you will never go lost. Salvation is God-centered. Salvation includes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to um, us. Salvation includes the perfect keeping of the law in Jesus Christ. Salvation belongs, comes from, and is for the glory of God. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he, Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Father, what a joy to see Christ magnified. There is so much to this doctrine that completely confounds us. It is difficult to fully comprehend all that you have done in your Son. But we are thankful, Lord, that you've provided a perfect sacrifice and the perfection of your Son so that we could be free from the penalty of sin and free from the law of Moses. You've done what we could not, never do, Lord, and we are thankful to you. 
Pray that those who are here in our midst who does not know, who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, may they come to know what it means that His death guarantees redemption and forgiveness for them, Lord. Pray that they would call out to Him in faith and become not only His child, but a partaker of the great blessings that is found in Jesus Christ. Now we pray for your grace and your kindness as we leave this place, that you would be magnified in our lives as we walk in accordance with the law of the spirit of life, delivered from the, from the law of sin and death. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.